Welcome to the Boomer Effect Podcast, where we strive to gain a better understanding of not just those generations that came before us, but those who come after us, breaking down generational differences and establishing a common ground. Boomers made mistakes, but they got a lot right as well. Join Jerry and Rose as they attempt to understand and overcome the generational divide. So Mike Lindell and all the MyPillow employees want to thank all of our listeners for your continued support. To thank you, they're having an overstock clearance and new product sale right now for the best prices ever when you use promo code BOOMER. And you get free shipping on the entire order. Get 50% off the MyPillow 2.0. Also get 50% off the brand new flannel sheets that just arrived and they're not going to last long. Trust me. Six-pack towel set for only $29.98 and take advantage of the free shipping on larger items such as mattresses and mattress toppers. 100% made in the USA on sale for as low as $99.99. Everything is on sale from the brand new kitchen towels that have the same technology as the bath towels that actually absorb dog beds, blankets, couch pillows, and so much more. Oh, to get the best specials ever, go to MyPillow.com. And use promo code BOOMER and you get free shipping on your entire order. MyPillow.com, promo code BOOMER. Welcome to the Boomer Effect. Joining us today is Jamie Glass. He's director of the Pioneer Institute's Center for School Reform, and he's spearheading a drive to bring history and civics education back to the classroom. That's so very important. So welcome, Jamie, and thanks for agreeing to join Jerry and myself today. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. So, all right, so let's talk about this. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about the Pioneer Institute's Center for School Reform? So Pioneer Institute's a nonpartisan think tank in Massachusetts. It's been around since the late 80s. It, it essentially uses high-quality research and data to help drive decision-making and public policy in Massachusetts. And we were one of the big uh, drivers behind Massachusetts' historic K-12 education reform that was initiated in 1993, but it's sort of taken us from middle of the pack to number one in the country and in, in internationally competitive in, in math and science. Impressive. Very impressive. So when we talk about this show, Jerry and I like to take a look at each generation, how each generation has had an influence or an impact on the next generation. And that's a big deal to us because we see that we've lost certain things um, with each generation. And I would think that this is one of the, you fall into that category because fewer people in America really understand our history and our government. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a thing that really is great about American history, and we think it's important to look at it, warts and all, is that it, give, it gives young people and uh, a connection, an intergenerational contract and connection uh, to their parents and grandparents. And it's important, again, to look at the history with all of its complexity, but there's a basic vocabulary of democracy. There's a basic understanding of the structure of government, the, the uh, separation of powers, the powers of the various branches, the Bill of Rights that is unifying. And, you know, one of the best examples of that is Martin Luther King, who drew heavily on the founding documents and a lot of the touchstones of American history to make his arguments on behalf of civil rights. And so that's an example of there's a kind of continuity, a thread that goes throughout and is gradually improved upon, hopefully, 
through generations uh, that that binds us together as a people. It really binds us together as citizens, and it gives us a shared understanding and a and a common past, even though that some of that past can be complicated. Yeah, so, I agree. Let me ask you this, Jamie. A lot of times on the show, we'll talk about how information about the country. Uh, trials and tribulations of the countries passed from generation to generation. And over time, when it came to the future generations, they, they relied more on that information being passed through the school systems, through the media. And so what you're really kind of telling us right now is that when we look at the loss of that information going from physically from one generation to the other because people are busier now and things like that, and we're, divide, we're relying on things like our educational system as one of those legs of educating the future leaders of America, that that's kind of changed how, you know, the, the picture has changed is how that that educational process is happening. Is that kind of what you're telling us? That's That's right. So the Founding Fathers... Uh, really viewed public education uh, going back to the beginning. And a lot of these state constitutions were very clear that those the rights and responsibilities is at the state and local level. And that, that, that public schools and schooling more generally is supposed to be a wellspring of democracy. It is supposed to have shared knowledge, shared, shared civic knowledge and literacy that connects us as a people. And so uh, the kinds of arguments, for example, and the kind of structure of government that the founders put in place was something that Lincoln carried forward during the Civil War. Uh, there are arguments about um, uh, about basic civic civil rights and uh, and and democracy that were uh, you know one of the reasons why people fought in World War One and World War Two was to preserve democratic ideals, not just here uh, but abroad, and our politicians, whether it's the founders or Lincoln or uh, FDR or MLK, across time, they use that language of democracy and those historical touchstones to connect us. Yeah. And the reason why people have been willing to die on behalf of uh, preserving democracy or people have been willing to uh, work as hard as MLK and uh, leaders in the civil rights movement did in order to per preserve democracy and perpetuate and expand our rights and democratic ideals is that they understood it's precious and fragile. And that's an important lesson for the schools to teach. And it's an important lesson uh, and message for families to teach one another because it connects us uh, between generations and, and in a way forces us to look at hard areas where we haven't fulfilled our democratic ideals and where, where we can do better and the figures that sacrificed enormously to do better. And so, you know, there's a lot of politics and a lot of the culture these days is not very uplifting, but a lot of it I think is ignoring that there are common threads that bind us together as people. And in spite of our differences, that there are things that we can agree on, and they may just be the, you know, the power of the presidency or the power of the Supreme Court or the, or the Congress, or it might be, you know, the basic ideals articulated in the Bill of Rights. People can argue about them, but they have to have the basic uh, vocabulary that bind us uh, and connect us as a people uh, across different ethnicities and different regions and uh, different races that pulls together to say, hey, we're Americans. We share things in common not only as Americans, but as people. And that, I think, is what schools need to be doing more of. And 
it, it doesn't, you know, so that, you know, I, again, I think it's, we, we have not seen as much of that in the last 30, 40 years. And I think we're looking at an environment, both with our politicians, but also in the civic culture, that's a lot less unified and robust than it than it could be. We're talking to Jamie Glass. He's the director of the Pioneer Institute Center for School Reform. And we're going to we'll ask you later on in the podcast how people can get in touch with you. But you mentioned a few things. You talked about how history connects us and how important that is. And I think I was one of the last students to go through public school to learn history. And I have to tell you, Jamie, that one of the things that I love the most, one of the classes I love the most was history. And even when I went on to um, college, I was involved because of a paper I wrote, uh, invited to an honor seminar, and the paper was called The Case of Heaven Against Hell, and that was about the Revolutionary War. But the thing is... The, if we were truly taught history, there are so many cool things about it. One of the things that really made me feel connected to those founding fathers is when they were drafting the Declaration of Independence, which was a very bold move, and naturally they were afraid. They talked about it being something that uh, by doing so, they were risking their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor. They knew the magnitude of it. We're not taught that. When I read that, when I read in the old history books where they did didn't censor out the fact that after those men signed it, in fact, they didn't even, even while everyone in the room agreed it was a great idea, they were so afraid and they were so concerned. And it was Witherspoon who stood up and said, you know, there is a tide in the affairs of men. Do you perceive it not before you? To hesitate is to agree once again to our own slavery. After, And that was just a portion of what he said. What he said was so powerful that they understood that, yeah, we agree and we agree now. Now we all agree that now is the time. If not now, then when? And when they signed it, some historians in the books that I read years ago reported that many of those men, these strong men, these influential men, actually broke down and cried while others got on their knees and prayed because they understood the magnitude of what they had done. That connected me to them. I had tears in my eyes as I read those passages in those history books. They don't have that any longer in the schools. They don't know what people sacrifice. It almost makes me want to tear up again right right now. When I think about the sacrifice, what it must have meant to them, the cost of doing what they did. And they were normal men. They were men like you and I and men and women who they knew they were afraid. They had fear. But it was Witherspoon who took them beyond that fear into that act of courage to declare that independence from a tyrant. So when you're not learning these stories, how can you have any sense of connection with those who gave so much for you to have what you have today? How in the hell can you have that? You can't. No, it's true. I mean, look, the human beings are the storytelling animal. Uh, Stories and passing along those uh, traditions and those narratives are fundamental to what it means to be human. And you mentioned Jonathan Witherspoon, who was a great... Uh, example uh, of both a statesman but an educator. He was the president of what became Princeton University, which is where James Madison studied, who, you know, incidentally framed the Constitution and drafted the Bill of Rights. But he, uh, Jonathan Witherspoon, was a great articulator of the the Enlightenment ideals about well-educated, rational, and industrious uh, citizens sitting down and crafting government based on the uh, consent of the governed. This was a radical idea. You are absolutely right. There, There is a world of difference between the world of Englishmen, which all the founders were, 
which were, they were subjects of the king, and transitioning to citizens where they're self-governing and autonomous and well-educated so that they're able to perpetuate the, the, uh, what James Madison called the sacred fire of liberty. And the, the fact is, is that students need to learn this because it's very difficult for them to love or to appreciate a country if they're not talked about the figures like uh, the founders, uh, warts and all, that sacrificed enormously. The reality of it is, is that uh, uh, if the founders or people in the revolutionary generation had been captured uh, by the British, they would have been brought back to England and they would have been tried and then they probably would have been found guilty and oh, then yeah. likely, certainly likely drawn and quartered. They're, and, you know, in some instances, their limbs would be sent to all the different uh, far reaches of England. I mean, the the... British crown was incredibly brutal and they were violating the basic rights that these men had it felt were guaranteed them as Englishmen. And, but it, but it were, it was their own knowledge, Jonathan Witherspoon, Madison, Hamilton, Jefferson, John Adams, Samuel Adams. It was their own grounding in the Judeo Christian uh, tradition in Greek and Roman uh, history and law. It was these Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke and uh, Montesquieu and, and others that they took all these lessons. And we are really fortunate because it's rare. I mean, that's the thing that I think it's hard for young people and people to realize is that the kind of government that we have is a rarity because most of history is governed by kings and princes and monarchs. And, Jeff and Jefferson and these guys were some of the most, um, uh, you know, um, radical in some ways and some of the most conservative because they were trying to preserve uh, liberty, but they understood you had to do it with a sound constitution. And they just sampled across history all the best lessons from uh, all the, uh, the most successful civilizations to set up a constitution that would be stable and endure in order to perpetuate liberty. And so kids really need to learn about it. They have to be schooled in the learning of liberty. And it can something be taught, and it can be taught to anybody. And the fact is that's why people come from all over the world to be here and to work here, because there's something unique and different that's offered here that is is profoundly different from much of what you see across the, 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 the globe. Okay. And so... We have to be appreciative of the uniqueness of it, and it's fragile, and it needs to be perpetuated. You only know that, though, if you're taught that. That's that's part of the problem, right? You only know that. And when you talk about freedom, and, and you talked about you know, the bloodlines in Europe, when those men, those founding fathers came here from Europe, they— they knew they lived in a society where you could only amount to something based on your bloodline. And that was it. Then you had no other opportunities. So when they came here, they, they believed that there was greatness that resided in every person. And all that was necessary to unleash that greatness was freedom. They, if, if we truly taught, if, if we were really teaching our children what they need to learn about our history here, particularly this country, our constitution is the most amazing document that's ever been drafted. And in all of history. Uh, by the way, I, I wanted to bring up something too. There was one example, Abraham Clark, he was a signer of Declaration of Independence. He was from New Jersey. He had two sons who went on to fight in the Revolutionary War. They, Those sons were captured by the British. They were put on the ship called 
the Jersey. And that was a prison ship that was right off of the shores of New York. And because of the brutality that that was known about this ship against the Patriots on this ship, it was eventually referred to as the Hell Ship. Abraham Clark's sons experienced extremely difficult times there, and they were treated so poorly on there. One son was put into solitary confinement without food, and when the war was just about over, the British made Abraham Clark an offer. They said, recant and come out in favor of the king and we'll release your sons. Now, any one of us who are parents, I mean, we love our children more than we love our own lives. And he said, no. He answered with a firm no. Can you imagine how difficult that must have been to, to love freedom, to love what you were doing for this country, to make a sacrifice? That's why they said they, but if pe- people don't know these stories, that's a story that changes right. your life when you read that. That's a story that anybody can relate to, The you know? Absolutely. You know, one of the best examples of uh, the, the King George III, when he heard that George Washington, after the uh, success of the uh, uh, revolution in, in independence, heard that George Washington had resigned his commission as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Right. His his foe, King George the Third, famously said, "If he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world." And that's his. That was his opponent. Wow. And the the same was equally true toward the end of Napoleon's life, who, you know, he said, "They wanted me to be another Washington." That idea of of a political leader, a military leader, relinquishing power not just when he was commander in chief of the Continental Army, but also really after his two terms as president, there was no obligation at that point to serve more than two more terms. Than, but yeah. the but the bottom line is, is that George Washington had learned from the, it's almost a legendary figure from Roman history, Cincinnatus, about relinquishing power. Mm-hmm. And he learned these lessons from the Greco-Roman figures it's one of the reasons, frankly, why we have our Senate. Uh, what you were saying. Yeah. Okay. We, ahead, yeah. That's, that's, and it's one of the reasons also why his aide de camp, his right hand man, when he was in the in, uh, leading the Continental Army, but also during when he established his first government, was Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was a guy who was born on the island of Nevis. He came from very humble background, but. But uh, Washington recognized that this guy was brilliant in harmonizing uh, the world of constitutionalism, of of trade, of banking. And he was, you know, indispensable. But he was not he was exactly what you're talking about. He was a man of talent and was allowed to rise to the highest uh uh, you know, a peak of of American government and serve George Washington because he Washington recognized that this guy was talented and mm-hmm. it didn't matter that he was from Nevis. It didn't matter where he was from or who his father was. He was a man of talent and genius. And so that's the thing that that he, Hamilton is an just an excellent example of what you were saying, where uh, the founders wanted to have uh, a government and a society based on merit and virtue and and talent and virtue and not hereditary rule not endless ministers and bureaucrats that can micromanage or abridge people's rights because they learned from englishmen that that's what ends up happening when you have these entrenched interests around the king 
uh, with these ministers that they're self-serving and yes. self-dealing and right. that they, co- they, compromise li- they compromise liberty. You're right. That's exactly right. So let me ask you this, Jamie. To me, it appears that there's kind of three issues, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. You know, you've got some people out there that want to believe that the stories that you're, we're talking about right now, that they were slanted towards a narrative at the time. So they don't want they, they, they want to look at it like there's an issue with those stories. Then you've got people today that they actually want to slant them and, and move history in the direction that matches their narrative. And then we've got a situation where we have a lack of discussing history at all. And so, you know, when you've got people that want to say maybe history wasn't right, people that want to say, well, we think it should be written this way, and then you got a lack of educating people on history altogether, I assume that's, you know, that's the battles that you face in trying to uh, get a, a, an educational process back in the schools. Yeah, I mean, one of the most influential uh, statesmen and thinkers on the founders was the Roman uh, statesman uh, Cicero. And he had a profound impact on the founders and, and, in, and in fact, was probably one of the most influential figures across Western history. And he said, it, I think it well, he said, to not know about the world before you were born is to ever remain a child. And that's why mm. understanding history mm-hmm. and all these lessons from history are just indispensable because these this is knowledge that we need to know in order to make good decisions. That's what the founders were drawing on. Uh, the example of the Roman Constitution or some of the failings of the Greek city-states or some of the failings of the British government or, uh, you know, uh, you know, it was a main source of a lot of conflict between Jefferson and Hamilton about what the future of the republic was going to, was going to look like. But the fact is, I mean, from my point of view, and uh, I, you know, I remember over the last several decades that we haven't been doing a good job of teaching history and not to mention civics. So, you know, I think that's the thing is you're you're when you don't teach kids history, you uh, you're consigning them to uh, like a perpetual adolescence. Mm. And I think we see that in a way you see them lacking the same kind of maturity because there's something about learning history and learning civics that tempers you when you 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 have to have some kind of humility in front of historic figures when you think about John Adams, who wrote the 1780 Constitution in Massachusetts, the oldest written constitution in continuous use in the world. Uh, it's it's uh, eight or nine years older than the U.S. Constitution. And uh, he was an unbelievably learned guy. But, you know, the thing about it is, that, you know, look, history also teaches you to weigh and evaluate new evidence as it becomes available. And I do think it's important that we look at the founders not as as demigods, not as, but as humans. You alluded to it earlier. They were they, they were men with failings. They were ambitious. Right. They were uh, petty. They were uh, fractious. I mean, uh, you know, and and they were and they had a, you know, horrible alliance that they had to make with uh, with slavery. And the fact is, is that as as awful as it was, the country would never have been independent from Great Britain if the North and the South hadn't made compromises uh, in the Constitutional Convention or at the um, in the in the uh, Continental Congress. But they also set up institutions that could be amended and gradually changed over time 
so that you could put slavery on a road to extinction. And it took the Civil War, 620,000 people, a million casualties for the country to resolve that topic. And we still deal with some of the legacy today. And I think it's important for people to look at it. But that's part of what kind of grounds people that politics and political decisions do not they're not utopian and they don't change overnight and you know the whether it is the uh, rebellion from great britain or the process to develop the constitution or whether it's the uh, the contentiousness that led up into and the you know the enormous loss of life of the civil war or all the other elements that you find in the civil rights movement this this is what kind of grounds us as human beings. It helps us to understand that we're imperfect. We're all imperfect. And to understand ourselves, to understand even our greatest figures as people that were human and have failings and shortcomings, and that we all do the best we can, as I think they did, the founders did, and Lincoln and you know, others across our history, to uphold the rule of law and constitutionalism for liberty. And it's just enormously important and kids need to understand it, but they, but they, you know, they have to be taught it and they have to, it has to be grounded in civics has to be coupled with an understanding of history because history is sort of uh, philosophy teaching by example. And that that's the way kids are going to understand it. I know you've had a lot of success in Massachusetts, but what, what's the outlook for the rest of the country? Can we expect reform? Is it too late? No, look, I, I think we all have to remain optimistic. It's never too late. I mean, I think if you one of the lessons from the revolutionary generation is, is that you wouldn't put a lot of money that a ragtag collection of farmers were going to take on the largest empire in the world with the largest navy in the world and win. Uh, and one of the lessons from Washington is that he kept together. He lost a lot, but he continued to fight. And it's I don't I am optimistic uh, enough to think that there, there's a lot of examples of the country has an enormous capacity to renew itself and that uh, that that people gravitate towards uh, perpetuating uh, liberty. And so I don't think it's too late. Massachusetts has done a lot of things right. We are a real high-performing state. That's not really the case in, in history and civics. We have really good standards. Mm -hmm. They chipped away at them. There's We have a standardized test in Massachusetts, which is correlated with all these national and international gains in English and math and science. And, uh, but it, these battles are kind of never won entirely. You have to keep pushing for the higher academic expectations and some basic accountability to measure the performance. Um, and so, you know, what, what I think needs to happen is in, you know, the book that we have uh, produced is uh, Restoring the City on a Hill U.S. History and Civics in America's Schools. It's got an introduction from uh, Paul Reed, who's the New York Times bestselling biographer of Winston Churchill, who, you know, people remember Churchill's mother was American. He was half American. That's right. But if there's anybody that did a great job in the 20th century, maybe the best job of anyone in the 20th century of, of articulating what the ideals of democracy are against authoritarianism and totalitarianism, both in terms of Nazi Germany, but also the Soviet Union and communism, is Churchill. And he was, he wrote 50 books. Uh, there's very few politicians today that write 50 books. Uh, and he articulated this larger vision. And, uh, and MLK and the civil rights did the same thing. He drew from, they drew from history to explain to people a larger vision of what 
democracy was about and what is at stake when you're fa facing uh, Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or you know, segregationists that are trying to abridge people's liberties. And that's what I think we need to do is we need to push our politicians and our educators to serve a much higher purpose of educating kids around these democratic ideals so that they can cherish them, that they can that they can be the kind of uh, uh, citizens that emulate the founders and sacrifice their lives or fortunes and their sacred honor to perpetuate something that their children and follow on generations can benefit from too. Good point. You know, when I, when I look at this, you know, when I listen to you, one of the things that becomes apparent to me is when we look at American history, it was all about overcoming adversity. And so when we don't teach our kids about that history, it seems that we're also not educating them on how to overcome adversity which when we talk to a lot of generations, especially younger generations right now, they feel like life's tough and they, and they don't know how to overcome uh, certain adversities. They don't have that inner strength to be able to do that. So I kind of correlate the teaching of civics in American history because it's the story of overcoming adversity uh, to educating children on how to overcome adversity as adults. That's why I thought it was interesting when you made the comment about them staying children when yeah. they're not taught about their history. No, you're so right. I mean, one of the best examples of that is Frederick Douglass, who was born in servitude and uh, a slave in Maryland. Uh, he uh, was able to, uh, with assistance, ultimately get to freedom settled in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and was very active, became very active, uh, active in the abolitionist movement, was one of the most prominent, maybe the most prominent African-American abolitionist. And he wrote five autobiographies. They all start with the same thing. And it's, it's heartbreaking, actually, to hear it, but he didn't know his birthday. Oh, I mean, it's a fundamental thing. He didn't know his birthday. Yeah. He starts off everyone saying, I don't know when I'm born. The life of a slave is that they don't know the, their birth date or their who their parents are any more than an animal would. And But what you can see is that he overcame those obstacles and those barriers. And very few kids or people today have that kind of uh, deprivation that they don't right. know when their birthday is. And it's enormously inspiring. And of course, he went on to push Abraham Lincoln and uh, and uh, push the political leadership um, uh, during the civil prior to and during the Civil War and, and afterwards. And it's an enormously inspiring story. And, you know, the people forget, too, about the founders is that most of them. I mean, Washington did not go to college. Uh, John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, many of these folks, Benjamin Franklin did not attend college, and yet he became this great statesman, this great scientist, this great inventor. But many of the founders were the first generation in their family to go to college. There were very few people in Virginia that were like Thomas Jefferson that were uh, reading Greek and Latin and new history and designed their own building, uh, buildings and a home designed later the University of Virginia, the buildings, the rotunda there, which is one of the greatest pieces of architecture. So 
uh, he was a very, very unique figure, even for his time. But it was their knowledge and their education that and the examples of figures across history that inspired them. And I think that's the thing is that the the stories of historic figures, whether it is Cicero taking on the tyranny of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, which he lost his life for, uh, or whether it is uh, the, the, the founders risking everything uh, for uh, the opportunity to govern themselves, or whether it is uh, abolitionists like Harriet Tubman or uh, Frederick Douglass, you cannot read these stories and have them not move you. They are because they're human and they had enormous obstacles that they, many of them overcame, but they did it. And that's, what's inspiring about it. That's the, you know, the utility of, of having generations of people, whether it's parents or grandparents or great, great children or school children understand that there are things that are human in these great heroic uh, and notable figures that, that connect us. Like we can share in, the hardship and the success of Frederick Douglass, but we have to read his autobiography or we can share in the hardship of Benjamin Franklin leaving Boston because he didn't thought it was a too restrictive place. And he went to Pennsylvania and he helped change the world. I mean, the, and now the, it is the a British restrictive place. Him as the most, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he, you know, the, the British government regarded him as the most dangerous man in the world. Isn't that he didn't interesting? Go to college, he, you know, so, I mean, it's it just the, the point of it is that these are inspiring stories. And I think in previous generations, we did a better job of passing on these stories because they're human stories and they're certainly American stories too, but they're human stories. And those kinds of those stories and that narrative and that history is important. You know, to read, you know, to read about Martin Luther King and all in which he sacrificed it and, you know, ultimately lost his life for uh, is just enormously inspiring. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he died trying to help sanitation workers in Memphis uh, get a little bit more money so that they could be seen as human beings and, and live and live a decent life. And he was killed in Memphis. Uh, uh, but that's what he was doing. And, you know, you can't read about that man's life and not realize it's a very American story. And it's a, you know, heroic story. And, you know, this this month and another couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating Martin Luther King's birth. King's birthday, and kid, you know, kids need to know more than just "I have a dream" speech. They need to know that there's larger spiritual messages and historic messages that, in a way, transcend politics. Like politics is just sort of, um, uh, it's important to understand it, but there's a larger quality of life that young people can draw from these 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 uh, heroic figures across history. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned the spiritual aspect of it too because first of all the revolutionary war period the the idea of freedom was greatly influenced by the great awakening of that time. Additionally, if you go if you jump ahead to the second great awakening which was around the time that there was a movement against slavery, there was the women's movement. When you think about first 
of all, and that's why I love that story. I'm glad you brought up Douglas, Frederick Douglas, because he truly is an inspirational figure. But what women don't know, young women today don't know, is their history. Because Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who were very dear friends, they were, first of all, influenced very much by the Second Great Awakening. They were they worked passionately against uh, slavery. As a matter of fact, Susan B. Anthony just railed against slavery. She made very strong speeches against slavery during her time. And it was because of that, because of her work against slavery, that at one point, you know, she's talking to her best friend, Elizabeth, and they decided, wait a minute, we believe that all men are created equal. And because we believe that, that means women too. Why, why is it just men? Is it not women? So they believed that all men were created equal and that is what propelled them into their work against slavery. But at the same time realized that, wait, women were created equal as well. So they were a influenced by religion, spirituality, B worked passionately against slavery and C they fought for future generations of women. Now, let me tell you something. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and uh, Susan B. Anthony died before women had the right to vote, but because of their work, and they, and I think, I can't remember which one wrote which one, but I think Susan B. Anthony wrote Elizabeth and said, little did we know that after all these years, what was it, 40 years, 50 years of working on equal rights for women and the opportunity to vote, that they would have to pass that on, that battle on to the next generation. Here we go again with a generational thing. I just got chills. They couldn't finish the work that they started. It was a battle for them for many, many years. They were passing that battle on to the next generation of women who picked up the baton and they went ahead and finally we saw the right to vote for women. But they didn't give up. And here's the other thing, too. And I think this is such an important lesson when we talk about generational issues. Not only did they not give up, they could have given up and said, you know what, we're never going to see this in our lifetime. I'm done. We're done. No, they understood the importance of it so much that they even said in a letter to each other, we will pass this on to the next generation of women. And essentially, the founding fathers did the same. They knew they would never, ever appreciate fully the fruits of their, what they had just done. They were never going to fully appreciate that, but they did it for generations of people they didn't know. And I think that's something that really ties in to this show, and I think we'll end on that note, and you can comment on it, is all of these people throughout history, they were not sure that they would see the results of their efforts and their labor, but yet they did it anyway. They did it anyway for future generations. No, you're so right. I mean, that's the thing is, is that it, one of the things about studying history is that you realize it's o- almost always in the balance and nothing is you know, engraved in stone. And you're, you're absolutely right. I, I grew up at, around Mount Holyoke College. It's the oldest women's college in the United States. It was founded in 1837, one year after James Madison, the man who framed the Constitution and wrote the Bill of Rights, died. Hmm. That's a remarkably short period of time to right. have a all-female institution established. And you're absolutely right. There's a larger, it could be the first great awakening, the second great awakening. It could be the abolitionists. And a lot of them were religiously inspired folks. It could be on both, you know, the, uh, some of the figures in the civil war could be right on through, uh, to world war one and world war two and the civil rights era. I mean, MLK and the main drivers of it were Baptist ministers, right? That spirituality has been interwoven with American history. And uh, there's no question that, uh, you know, when the, the women's movement, um, it, it, which really, you know, goes back to the 19th century, is 
you know, it's exemplified by people like Abigail Adams, who was uh, until recently the only woman in American history to have her her her, her husband and her son as president. That's a pretty wow. unique accomplishment. <laughs> That's and impressive. the common connection, the common connection is Abigail, who was a remarkably religious woman and a very moral person. But these these kind of larger spiritual messages. They matter. And I think that you're absolutely right that that that's what that should be the kinds of messages that would bind uh, generations together. Yeah, that's really good. And even the city restoring the city on a hill is the book that you talked about, which, by the way, where can people get a copy of that restoring the city on a hill? So there's more details about it on our website, which is pioneerinstitute.org, but it's also available uh, on, on Amazon. And so uh, it, it's a great book, and we've worked hard. It sort of culminates 10 years of research or more, and we, we think it's really good quality, and it could be helpful to policymakers and educators and families when they're uh, trying to pass on these ideals to uh, uh, their follow-on generations. Even the idea of America being the city on a hill, which goes all the way back to our founding fathers and beyond, in fact, uh, that's scriptural. That is completely scriptural. So, yeah, they were heavily influenced by scripture and the desire for freedom for all people. So, all right, you know what? This has been great. I really enjoyed it. And so did Jerry, I'm sure. It was great. I loved it. So we were talking to Jamie Glass. He's the director of Pioneer Institute Center for School Reform. Also, check them out at Pioneer, I'm sorry, yeah, pioneerinstitute.org. And also the book, Restoring the City on a Hill. We talked a lot about this, about U.S. history and civics in America's schools. You can get that at Amazon or also at pioneerinstitute.org. Jamie, thank you so much. Thanks for your time, Jamie. Thank you both. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. We did too. You've been listening to the Boomer Effect Podcast. Different generations fight each other as if it's a football game. There's good and bad in all generations, but we want to break down generational differences and find common ground. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe. We had a blast, and we hope you did too. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, you can find us at www.theboomereffect.com. See you next time on The Boomer Effect.